Hello, I'm Carrie Bigmore. Welcome to Brains Trust. In this podcast, we will enlist the country's most interesting, funny and often complex people to help us reflect and understand our lives a little better. They aren't experts necessarily, but they all have curious minds, big brains and love a laugh. For Victorians, the two lockdowns, first one felt like a fun run where everyone's like dressing up and oh, I'm going to do it as a gorilla. We can do this. This is fun. This is easy. Second one felt like a 200 kilometre hike. You just got to grind this out. This Brains Trust of well-known Australians has been gathered together by journalist and producer Chris Walker. Hi, Carrie. Who are we here from, Chris? I've spoken to people that I admire, people that I care about and people that I work with. There's the Bondi vet, Dr Chris Brown, who's worried about a planet in peril. That difference between conservation and development has never been more stark. Journalist and writer Annabelle Crabb talks a massive year in politics. Occupancy of the Oval Office does not connote a sense of elevation and principle in the way that it used to. Carrie, your mate, academic Waleed Ali, lets us in on his sometimes alter ego. Former Richmond mascot. It's on the CV, you can't take it off. (laughs) (laughs) Australian comedic royalty Hamish Blake fills us in on David Attenborough. Is he the nature guy? Yeah, he does docos. He's really into animals. He's sort of like a posh Steve Irwin, I guess. The Daily Show's Ronnie Cheng grapples with social media. We're still developing the antibodies to deal with social media and the internet in 2020. And we don't have full immunity. We talk race relations with Indigenous rapper and writer Adam Briggs. White people have had the microphone and the power for so long. Mm. They're not used to sharing it. It becomes incredibly uncomfortable for them. And comedian and close friend Kitty Flanagan tells us how she passed the time in lockdown. Just online shopping. Yeah, just increased it. I got much better at it. (laughs) Each episode will move between these awesome guests, like an eavesdrop on the ultimate conversation. Thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed it. So before we bury 2020 deep in our memory, we're going to walk through it all again and see how it changed us and what we learnt along the way. I hope you enjoy Brains Trust Season 1. We begin in Australia where the catastrophe caused by bushfires. The death of 41-year-old basketball legend Kobe Bryant. The World Health Organization holds an emergency meeting today regarding the coronavirus. A travel ban will be placed on all non-Australian citizens coming to Australia. The authorities have announced the state's first death linked to COVID-19. So I said to my people, slow the testing down, please. Dozens of protests after the death of George Floyd. Tokyo 2020 Olympics postponed. I'm Joe Exotic. Democracy is the heartbeat of this nation. 2020 has been so consumed by COVID-19 that it's almost impossible to think about anything else. But the year started in the clutches of another crisis. Bushfires that killed 34 people and burned over 18 million hectares of Australian land. Reconciling the double punch of the coronavirus and the bushfires was something Dr Chris Brown found difficult. I started 2020 over in Africa on I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here with blue skies and and green forest and, and you know, it felt very disconnecting to Australia because Australia was on fire, um, you didn't see blue sky and and people were in a heightened state of, of concern and and, and the, the issue of, of how our wildlife were doing was, was probably front of mind um, for a lot of people, including me, and I... I, I, I had a lot of guilt about the fact that I was I was overdoing a show over there rather than B 
been back here in Australia helping out animals. And and I remember I, I um, on the way back, I had my temperature checked at Johannesburg Airport. And I was like, that's new, that's different. And, you know, certainly heard about COVID and, and, and heard people talking about that and the fact that it was, there were cases around, but that was the first time I was like, oh, this is, this might actually be a thing. This might be real. This, this may actually be something we need to um, be concerned about. But I remember when you were going to come down and visit me and I think you were going to drag me along to the Formula One. Yeah. And we were, we were going back and forth about whether or not you should come down from Sydney. And this was in sort of, it was, it was in that real week where it was like, you could almost, you could just tell this tidal wave was coming. Yeah. And you were fairly, I would say, cavalier about coming down. You thought, you kept saying to me, oh, I think it'll be all right. It's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. Which, mm. which was weird for me because you're generally a fairly conservative soul. Mm. So did it catch you by surprise? I, I think so. And I think it was, it was the fact that it felt like it wasn't here. Um, I, I think that that was the, the 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 level of cases at that stage were low, and, and it hadn't done its exponential growth thing just yet. Where it felt like it was an overseas issue, and then all of a sudden it became an Australian issue. And it was a mix of of wanting to believe in in the best possible outcome, but but a little bit also me wanting you to go to a Robbie Williams concert as well. Um, that, was a, that was a large part, part of it um, because I, kn- I know your your views on Robbie have been mixed over the years and the thought of, of seeing you um, just just humming the lyrics um, to Better Man I, th- I thought was probably was probably worth the risk of, of a global pandemic. No, seriously, I, th- I think it was, it was a critical week. I think it changed a lot of people's minds. That defining point when the, the Grand Prix was cancelled, I think, it was probably that that little sucker punch for, for everyone, where we we realised, okay, this is now our problem rather than rather than China's or Europe's or you know France or or, uh, or Spain's. As news of the virus started making its way around the world, some people took it more seriously than others. As comedian Kitty Flanagan explains, I was in Japan, and um, I was over there with my sister and her three boys, and my partner, and one of her boys, one of my nephews, we very uncharitably referred to as a hypochondriac and he was all over it. He kept telling us that coronavirus was coming. He was wearing a mask. He insisted on going and getting a mask. We were telling him to take it off in restaurants. We were going, you're being really rude. You know, you're kind of acting like everyone in here has got coronavirus. Take it off. He was checking the stats every day, telling us how many cases there were. He wanted to rub hand sanitizer on his face. He was going, can I put this on my face? He was like really super paranoid about it and we poo-pooed him. And, oh, wasn't we got out of Japan, I think, end of January, just before the whole thing Really kicked off. Kicked off. Yeah. He was ahead of the curve. 16. Yeah, right. <laughs> Unbelievable. Oh, man. I, I, I distinctly remember telling him he was being so rude wearing a face mask into a restaurant. Oh, man, I feel terrible now. I have apologised to him. You just mentioned some of your loved ones then. Did 2020 change any of your relationships? Yeah, I didn't get to see anyone nearly as much. That was pretty sad because um, I already have a long-distance relationship. With Joel, your partner. Yeah, and then once travel was shut down, that kind of <laughs> became uh, even less likely to see each other. But that's probably why we're still together. Um, <laughs> I think if he had to live with me, you know, for any lengthy period of time, he'd probably leave me. 
Because he, he is the easiest going man in the world. And I, you know, and I'm hard work. So he would be the one that would have to just go, I can't take it anymore. I'll take my chances with the virus. Yeah, he'll be the one that will leave. (laughs) As we all started to respond to the pandemic, so did the world's governments in very different ways. Comedian Ronnie Chang had unique perspective from his home in New York, from Australia where he was working at the time and from Singapore where his mother lives. So Australia shut down and, and America shut down kind of at the same time in March. So I, I could actually see competitive differences in reactions. And Australia shut down was way more logical and um, there was more support systems. For example, in Australia, when I got here, they had free testing. You could walk into free testing and get the results in like 48 hours or 36 hours. Even 36 hours was kind of like a joke about how long it took. And I remember telling my friends in New York that this was in March and they would be like, they couldn't believe one that you could just walk into a place and get tested for free and that you could get your test results that quickly. And even the idea of Australia at that time, kind of making everyone quarantine in hotels in America was like that. No one could, no one could understand a government pouring resources to organize the logistics of trying to stop the virus. Because in America, it's kind of like the Wild West. Like the idea that the federal government would step in and do it competently, especially spending money to like put people up in hotels was like, uh, couldn't, you know, no one in America could believe it. And a lot of Americans who don't have perspective don't even know that that would be a good response. Literally no perspective on what a good response looks like, you know. And I, I was lucky that I could compare it with Singapore where my mom currently lives and Australia where I happen to be and my wife is Australian and obviously I spent a lot of time here so a lot of my friends were Australian and comparing it to New York City and so it was almost like between these three places there was no comparison. How did your mum go? She was okay. Uh, uh, It was scary because I, I kept telling her if anything happens to you I'm not in the same country as you so you can't take any risks because if 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 you end up hospitalized or worse, I actually cannot enter Singapore. So luckily, I actually have a lot of faith in in, uh, how Singapore handles situations like this, their crisis management. They are very efficient and logical. And, um, uh, you know, you can can criticize them for being maybe cold in their cultural, um, uh, in the way they look at arts, (laughs) the art sector. But you can't, you can't, you can't fault, like who cares about arts at this moment? Like uh, you can't, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you can't fault their response to a virus. I mean, they know what they're doing. And also in, in Asia, we've seen viruses before. We've had mini pandemics, you know, SARS. And, and, and so there was kind of like a concept of, hey, there's a virus that we need to eradicate. It's kind of on you to do your part and the government is going to implement these rules. I mean, sometimes they go too strict and, and you know, if anything, they err on the side of caution. So in general, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone in Singapore who points to the government with a lot of distrust. You might find someone who thought that the government was playing it too safe, but I don't think anyone would be like, hey, you guys are playing this for politics. Writer and TV personality Annabel Crabb thinks that following the rules is an intrinsic part of our Australian mindset. I think that there is something that is really clear if you look closely about the Australian population, even though we love to revel in the myths of, you know, Ned Kelly and we love to think of ourselves as, you know, chippy little sorts that have a problem with petty authority figures. Actually, 
we love authority. We're so obedient. We love the feel of a boot in the face. And, like, when we did this, um, when the ABC did this Australia Talks um, project last year, which is this massive big data project, the number one characteristic that people named as being quintessentially important to be Australian was essentially following the rules, you know, not jumping mm. you um, and observing our rules and traditions. <laughs> to me there's a, there's a disconnect between our external personality, how everyone else views as the larrikin, and internally how yeah. uptight and, and rule-bound we are. Yeah, and, you know, we find comfort in it, I think, in the predictability of rules. And... I think politically this has added up to something really interesting in 2020. You know, the the tough border thing is actually tapping into the same instinct about, right, we need a series of rules, we need police to enforce them and we need everybody to follow them. We don't want any queue jumpers, we don't want any, you know, border crosses or whatever. I mean, it's the same sentiment. Rhetoric, same narrative, yeah. was very memorably employed um, 20 years ago by John Howard with, you know, um, we will decide who comes here and the circumstances under which they come. It's the same thing. It's just being um, used in 2020 by Labor state governments with a success that um, is, I guess, unsurprising when you look at that history, but it's really interesting to see it deployed successfully by another um, chunk of the political spectrum. 2020 forced a lot of people to slow down, in some cases to stop altogether. But that was not the case for rapper Adam Briggs. 2020 has been difficult. It's been difficult for everybody, right? Um, I've still managed to get stuff done, though. There was two options for me, either fail miserably or go hard and win. But I knew going hard was going to be ten times harder than normal. And I feel like that's what 2020 has been about. So you talked about the fork in the road there, failing miserably or, or winning. What would a failing look like? The couch, the PlayStation, um, many hours put into doing nothing, going inward and downward. Are you susceptible to that? Yeah, sure. I think everybody is. So let's talk about the winning then because I feel like there's something in you that's like driven by adversity. and That's a strange thing to say, but having at any point in your life being told you couldn't do something, whether it's uh, a symptom of your race or your upbringing or the school you went to or what, I don't, I don't know. But is that true? I think a lot of people have that as a start. Like that's, that's definitely how I started. Um, like no one bet on me coming from home. No one would have put their money on me doing anything. So, like, at first it was like, I'll show everyone. And then, but, like, that, that's not a good fuel. Mm. You know what I mean? That's a quick burn fuel that goes that goes away really quickly. That doesn't hang around long. You can't live off that. It's not sustainable. It's bad energy. You know what I mean? Mm. You'd be constantly having to show somebody and show them, you know, who's them, who's they. So what do you, what do you use for fuel now? Um, I just look inward and, like, it's always about like, you know, I, I drive um, for myself and to help other artists that are around me or other people um, achieve their things and like that's the kind of 
stuff that drives me now. It's like how many, how many people I can I can help out around me, because you know no one bet on me and nobody helped me. You know what I mean at the start. So if if I can lend a, a little bit of a hand there, just to give someone like a little bit of a boost, it can change the whole the way things look. But spite and doing things out of spite is it just doesn't have longevity, you know, and it starts to be corny because at some point those people don't matter. And in reality, they probably never mattered. Mm. You know what I mean? And as you get older, you start to realize that. Businesses shut down all over the country and the economic damage will be felt for years to come. Some professionals were able to adapt, with many people starting to work from home. But for someone like Ronnie Chang, it was going to take a while to find a new normal. My stand-up tour for 2020 was actually sold out. And then I had to cancel or, or postpone that tour to next year, you know. And even if it, we don't even know if it can still happen, right, because of the way the virus is. So that for me was probably the biggest change was doing live shows every day and then touring different cities every week and then kind of all that stopping. And this is very selfish, by the way. My biggest problem was whether or not I could tell jokes. You know, uh, thankfully, my health was okay. Um, my, my family's health was okay, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, there's shades of perspective with this whole thing, but it's interesting, like, you know, a lot of my friends are performers and a couple of them have been in tears and they were worried for a moment that the audience wouldn't come back. Yeah, I think there was that worry, um, but... One thing I learned over the pandemic is how much people do like stand-up comedy. I did a live show in Sydney and then I went back to New York um, after five months in Australia and New York City started doing shows in parks on rooftops and people came. And when people came for these shows, it was very, it was a a different vibe. It was like, it was hard to have these shows. So people almost appreciated it even more. Mm. You know, it was harder to get these shows and you could watch in Central Park, which by the way, is the worst place to do a stand-up comedy show. You know, outdoors, noisy everywhere and no microphones. And you could see people like sitting down and really straining to listen to these these jokes. And um, so I think it'll come back stronger. I think like what Seinfeld always said, leave them wanting more. I can feel it. I can feel people... Missing it, missing live performing. So I think he'll come back. And in fact, hilariously enough, dude, I was in, when I was in Sydney during the pandemic, I was walking down the street and people would see me. Some people recognize me and go like, hey, are you in Sydney to do a show? And I was like, oh, no, I'm, I'm here for some other work. And they'd be like, oh, okay, well, you should do a show while you're here. <laughs> and I was like, no one is doing a show. Nobody <laughs> is doing a show and no one might ever do a show again. Have you read the news lately? <laughs> And so there's a disconnect, man. People people don't even realize, you know, we're in it because obviously we're pretty anxious, progressive people and we're worried about the virus. And mo- there's a lot of people out there who are like, what virus? Yeah, once mm. it's, it's done, right? There's people who are like, yeah, it's done. I'll, yeah, I'll, go, I'll go see a show tomorrow. Kitty Flanagan worried that 2020 would change the complexion of her career. Touring was my livelihood. Everything else was a bonus on top of the, you know, but touring was what sort of kept me solvent and that was my main thing. That's what led to everything else as well. So long as you're touring and you're out there, you can pick and choose what else you do. But you are solvent. Sure. I'm not as solvent as when I'm touring. <laughs> yeah. Did that make you afraid? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. 
Because, you know, I'd, I'd banked on touring. We were about to start, you know, there would have been a new tour starting up probably about now. So that's uh, that was the plan. I should have been going out on a tour now. So I'd kind of, yeah, banked on that happening. With adults struggling to comprehend the ramifications of what was happening, comedian Hamish Blake felt his six-year-old boy Sonny did pretty well. I think they get it. I reckon kids his age have got it. They're like, I mean, but remarkably pragmatic. I don't know what your perception yeah. is of kids. Like everyone, kids, I reckon a lot of the worry is just what we bring to the table because we understand, you know, we're the ones reading about early days, like in northern Italy or going, oh, Jesus, a third wave in Iran. Like to kids, it's like there's some germs around and we've they know about germs anyway. Like you, yeah. hand sanitizer wasn't new. It was like everyone used to, you know, it's pretty normal for people to hand sanitise after you've been playing at the park all day when you need to eat your sandwiches. People understand germs and I think little kids understand germs and so just go, well, this is a bit different. So I I don't know about you, but I, I, I'm tried to tread that fine line between going, I don't want to f- trick you through this whole period I, because I, I know he's smart and kids are smart. Kids understand something's going on. So I'm like, I, I'll, I want to acknowledge something's going on with you, that people are behaving differently, People are obviously wearing face masks. You can't go to school. There's no point in going, no, 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 this is normal. So explain to them, like, this is strange. You know, we've had a lot of talks going, this is really weird. I didn't have to do this when I was a kid and we're all just kind of making it up as we go along and we're listening to the people in charge and we're trying to do what we need to do to help everybody get through this as a team and as a community. And, I, and I'm proud of, of seeing how fast kids are. I think it's quite heartwarming to see how fast kids are like, you've got to make some inconvenient sacrifices in your world so that a bunch of people you've never met can be better off. Uh, I loved that from what I saw, most, like pretty much all kids were just totally fine to do that. If you were explaining your mental health to Sonny, what would you tell him? It's a great question. For me, it's... It's how comfortable are you in your head, like, and what are your what's your conversation like in your head with yourself? And are you comfortable in your head? Yes, I am. Have you always been? No, <laughs> no I'm, I'm sorry. I was like, yes, I am at the moment, but but comfortable in the sense that I know things aren't always perfect in there. But comfortable in the sense that I'm at peace with the fact they're not always perfect, and I understand that when they're not perfect, we're working. I'm working through it with myself, or I'm processing things. I don't want that to. Uh, be misinterpreted as, yeah, <laughs> no anxiety. <I'm> <laughs> no anxieties or insecurities ever pop up in this old perfect noggin. Constantly they are and neuroses and, and like, you know, biases and, 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 you know, worries that aren't real and misreading things that aren't real. But, but I'm comfortable in the sense that I, underst- I think I'm in a place where I understand them and I, I know what they are when they happen and I, even though I haven't mastered them, I know they're there and I know that they're, just part of the buffet that is my the restaurant of my brain. Like we're all just trying to understand what's up there and be okay with it rather than change it. We all found our own ways to cope with the stresses of 2020. But Chris was keen to know if faith could be any help. He spoke to academic and practicing Muslim Walid Ali. How did people of faith, or if you prefer to talk specifically to your own faith, how do they reconcile with 2020? So I find this a really interesting question because I feel like it's a question that irreligious people ask. Well, yeah. I know quite a lot of religious people. Mm. I don't know any of them that are even asking themselves that question because why would 2020 raise a particular challenge? It may not even be a challenge. It may be, though, that you have another, let's call it, tool in your arsenal 
um, <laughs> that, is, that is potentially comforting or at, at, it's a way of rationalising the world and, you know, it's probably since 9-11 that it's been this hard to rationalise a year or an event. So I'm interested whether your observation is that it makes a difference. Well, it's, it's very hard to answer that because you have no I, reference? Don't, I don't know the alternative, yeah. Um, mm. I can only kind of theorise about it. I think your language of rationalisation is interesting because I think the point is that the first religious theme that I was reminded of once the pandemic hit was this idea that human beings are not in control, that we lie to ourselves about being in control, that that's probably true of all humans, but I think it's especially true of humans living in capitalist societies where we kind of like to believe that whatever problem arises, someone will invent something that's going to fix it and we'll be able to buy that product and that that will solve it, right? And you kind of see this, I guess, in the sort of um, assumption that there must be a vaccine and why can't we just get one, you know, I think that sort of stuff. I think, again, it would vary a lot, but I think for a lot of religious people there's just more comfort with the idea of not being in control, of the idea that solutions may not present themselves and that it's perfectly fine, in fact, important for us as human beings to recognise that we are at the mercy of things in a way that's far more than we choose to acknowledge. I think the other theme that's important is that this year has been a mass global suffering event for a lot of people. Mm. And I suspect your disposition on suffering is something along the lines of that it's it's not necessarily something that should be avoided at all at all costs. I agree that that's my approach to things, that I, I don't regard suffering as something that human beings must avoid. I think it's actually a really important part of the human experience and the human condition. And, yeah, it's probably true that religious people disproportionately understand that or have like have that approach to things. But what's interesting to me is actually even in popular culture now we're starting to see that kind of discourse emerge in an irreligious way. So what's the name of the guy who wrote that? Maybe I'll look it up. The guy who wrote that book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a... It was Mark Manson. The Subtle Art of Not Giving a by, yeah. by Mark Manson. His whole thing was about the importance of suffering. <laughs> so it was about, um, you know, human beings and, and the human condition is such that if you go through life avoiding difficult things then you end up being completely dysfunctional. Like human beings understood until fairly recently that at some point you're going to have to lift that really heavy object if you want to get stronger. Mm. That's just the way mm. that it works. Um, it's interesting he uses a kind of strength slash fitness analogy because it feels to me like that's the one element of suffering that people actually are prepared to embrace at the moment, yeah. probably because it makes them um, feel more attractive and that seems to be like the, the highest thing that you can aspire to or something. I don't know. We're prepared to undergo suffering for that, but not for yeah. other forms. Well, of... I think you, you undergo suffering for that because you get some pleasure in, at the back end, pardon the pun. Yeah, I suppose. Well, that's dependent on taste, I suppose. But yeah, yeah, the principle of that holds true, right? Now, by the way, that's not me saying I'm really looking forward to suffering. Like we don't enjoy it. That's kind of the point of it. But that's not to say it's not a necessary part of the human condition. I'm kind of conscious as I say this that I'm someone who in relative terms has not suffered a great deal and I don't begrudge mm. people who have suffered a huge amount struggling to cope with that suffering and to come to terms with that suffering. Or trying to get out of it. 
Yeah, no, I, I don't think we should rush towards suffering and then choose to wallow in it for no good reason. It's not that. It's more oh. about the extent to which suffering provides an opportunity for something. So I guess my, why it's relevant, I think, you know, in the religious context or otherwise, is that 2020, maybe it's an important year. Yeah, I think it is. There, you remember when it first hit, the pandemic first hit, there was all this we are the virus chat. This is kind of humanity's comeuppance for the unsustainable environmental degradation that we're unleashing and the, the way that we choose to live our lives and all that sort of stuff. But, but then I think we hit about the third hour of lockdown and lost patience with that sort of idea. <laughs> but, but it's interesting that people went to that place because even though that's a bit hackneyed and so on, there is a kind of truth that's being like articulated there, which is that we have been living fairly, what would you call it? maybe heedless lives. We, we didn't really think of ourselves because, because of that idea of wanting to be in control of things and believing we are in control of things. We don't think of ourselves as being dependent on things. And the environment is a classic case of that. We, our approach to the environment for a long, long time has not been one of dependency on the environment, but one of conquest. We conquer the environment and we go and get what we want from it and we turn it into what we want. Um, and then we enjoy our lives on that basis. You know, I want to build a road here. What? You're saying there's a mountain in the way? Well, we'll just blow that up, right? Like now, mm. now I'm not saying building that road's a problem. I'm just saying that that whole mindset, I think, is dominated, right? So we've, we've viewed everything as being something that we just overcome with our will and our intelligence and our technology and all this sort of stuff. I think what 2020 did was it made us realise the level of our not just our dependence, but our interdependence. So, you know, that means on things like the natural environment, but also on each other. So that leads us to the other kind of cliche of the year, which was that we're all in this together. And what I find interesting about that one is, um, yeah, there's a lot of eye rolling at it and there are a lot of ways in which that's not entirely true, but it actually is fundamentally true just at the basic level of if this thing is spreading and if you do things that allow it to spread, then I personally will suffer from that in one way or another as well. And so we kind of are in this together. Like, you know, one of the most interesting things I think about the second wave in Melbourne was, um, yes, it hit certain parts of society harder than others. So if you had casual work um, or insecure work or whatever, you were far more likely to get sick um, and far less likely to be able to go through things like lockdowns, get tested, all of that sort of stuff. So that's all true. I'm not denying that. But what's interesting is it's the working conditions and the inequalities in society that those people's lives capture that end up rebounding on the people who don't live like that, right? the people who run their own businesses or who are ultimately quite wealthy but had to live in lockdown for three months or whatever. One of the reasons they ended up in that situation was the inequality that existed in society before that, right? If these people didn't have insecure work and didn't go to work when they were sick because they felt they had no choice, then you might not be in this situation that you're in. That shows that we are all in this together, even if we don't want to be, and even if we're not sharing the burden equally. One fairly universal coping mechanism was baking, a pastime Annabelle Crabb, already an expert, became more familiar with. Here's where I just make a thoroughly humiliating confession, which is that, uh, yeah, I did start making sourdough bread after a while. I mean, like I kind of did <laughs> it for about, about four weeks and just thought, oh, my God, these people being overtaken by this baking fad. And then, of course, I got straight into it. And I think because 
baking that takes a long time like that is sort of not something you can do unless you're around the whole time, you know, because yeah. I, don't know, I don't know if you've ever made sourdough, Chris, but uh, yeah. you have to sort of keep... Oh, you don't you have a, doesn't it have a parent or something or there's a live something? <laughs> Thinking of the fact, the fact that it's sometimes called a mother, but it isn't. That's it. No, it's a starter, but, you know, it's a sort of bubbly thing that... It's is, like the placenta of the bread? Y- y- Yes-ish, um, but it's kind of what it is, is it's like a sort of a doughy tamagotchi like it's got to be fed <laughs> healthy and then you know it's got to be nice and bubbled and you've got to feed it with flour and water every day and so it doesn't really work unless you're around I mean I must say I had to throw mine out the other day because I'd neglected it um, and it was just looking all sort of toxic and you know the salty. kids are still good though yeah the kids are fine Chris they're totally fine um, anyway, so, but, you know, you've got to look in on that stuff all the time. It doesn't really, you can't really make sourdough unless you're there the whole time to, you know, turn it yeah. and, you know, move it to a different proving area and do whatever. Anyway, mine always were just sort of like footballs anyway, so it didn't, it wasn't an entirely successful experiment, but it was certainly fulfilling at the time. But baking sourdough is not the only thing Kitty Flanagan will miss about life in lockdown. I like the quietness and I like that people are more friendly, like because of the, I don't want to say desperation, but people are so happy to stop and chat. People haven't been in as much of a hurry. Like I've done a lot more stopping on the street and talking to people, which has been really nice, like because no one's rushing, you know, Mm. people aren't rushing to get anywhere because nowhere's open. (laughs) So that's Mm. been nice. I definitely won't worry about uh, clothes anymore, like. No one cares, like, that you wear the same thing every day. (laughs) Did you ever worry about clothes? Well, I just used to, like, concern myself with, oh, I should, you know, not wear that again because I wore it yesterday. Man, now I just wear it till it smells. Like, now I just wear (laughs) it till it needs a wash. Like, doesn't matter. No no one's going. (laughs) Oh, she wore that yesterday. It's like, no one cares. (laughs) Just, yeah, that's my new policy, wear it till it smells. I don't mean yeah, underpants. Right. Obviously, I change those every day, but you know. Yeah, that's. Cr- I mean, that's critical. Yeah, well, that's just basic hygiene. But you know. Yeah, yeah, it's very basic. <laughs> Did you take up any other hobbies? Just online shopping. You just upped it. Yeah, just increased it. <laughs> I don't think that. I don't think I that just, qualifies as taking up a hobby. I just. I got much better at it. <laughs> That's it for episode one of Brains Trust. Next time, we delve into family life in 2020, the year some of us became homeschool teachers, some of us got locked down with our loved ones, and others were forced into separation. I've got a a mum who's mid-70s with Alzheimer's and is in a a really high-risk group and is in an aged care facility. Dad, for a large period of time, wasn't allowed to see her, so he, he was able to stand at a window um, and look in at her and, and wave at her. Did that break him a bit? Oh, yeah, yeah. And and he's incredibly pragmatic and, and positive, but when he was short-tempered with me and, and, and didn't really want to talk about it, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, he's, he's struggling with it. That's when we next convene the Brains Trust. <laughs>